Good morning. COP28. After almost two weeks of negotiations, diplomacy, lobbying and yes, tension, in the early hours of Wednesday, an agreement that 198 countries could sign up to. On Morning Ireland, a breathless George Lee. To Dubai now and our correspondent George Lee. George, good morning. Uh, at seven o'clock good I morning. came into studio and they were just going into plenary session at uh, the, the COP meeting to look at this final draft. And I literally lifted my head and there was a, a flash from <laughs> Reuters saying a deal had been done. Amazing. It really was so quick this morning, you wouldn't believe it. Uh, as they trundled into this uh, plenary session, it, there was a lot of optimism because there have been very significant changes in the text that was proposed and that text came out uh, in the small hours of this morning, about four o'clock, five o'clock here local time. And so the issue then was everybody... all of- And this was the cornerstone of the agreement transitioning away from fossil fuels in energy systems in a just and orderly and equitable manner and accelerating action in this critical decade. That was really important to them so that they will achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. And speaking to Mary, Green Party leader and minister Eamon Ryan, one of the EU's lead negotiators on this deal. You have called this deal historic. How is it historic when those key words on a phasing out of fossil fuels is absent? It is historic. You can argue about whether transitioning away from or phasing out, they they mean the same thing in my mind. But it's historic because for 30 years, the United Nations process hasn't addressed the core of the problem. And it did today and connects it to science. But it's also historic and important in this way, Mary, because in a world divided and at war, when we are fraught with division and conflict and real climate impacts starting to come home, It shows we can still unite, we can work collectively, and that is important. But also what Sultan said there about reimagining how the entire financial system and also to put climate justice together with reducing emissions is critical. And yes, it's not perfect, but had we not got an agreement, had we not um, delivered this package together, then that would have been a critically sad and difficult day for the world, but it didn't. At the centre, it also says it's not just about transitioning away from fossil fuels. It's also about building a new renewable and energy efficient future and critically changing the entire financial architecture in the world to make that happen everywhere in the world. So, yes, we have to now deliver. Yes, we now have to act. But by getting this agreement, what it says is, first of all, the Paris Agreement is stronger today than it was yesterday. And it's a signal to us at home, but also to every single country in the world. We know where we need to go to. It is this renewable, efficient future. We have to deliver it now. And this agreement helps us do that. But what about that wording on which it seems so much may depend? But if words matter, Minister, and words do matter in agreements, how does transition away equal phasing out? It's the same thing. You could argue one word or the other. That word, those wordings were sensitive for certain people, but the actual meaning and the intent is the same, and it is based on science. And you have to get agreement to all 200 countries, as you said at the start. So you have to actually uh, make sure that you get the agreement in the first place. And we have done that. Ah, the delicate art of diplomacy. And with Philip, Dr. Cara Augustenberg from the Climate Change Advisory Council. 
What did she make of it? I have to say that I disagree with claims that this is historic. I mean, it is, it is good to see fossil fuels mentioned in this text, but at this stage, this is absolutely the bare minimum that we need to see in a text, uh, given how long we have left things and, and how desperate the situation is in, in terms of achieve, achieving that 1.5 degree uh, temperature limit and staying below it. Uh, so, so for me, this text is really, uh, it's got something for everyone in the audience. So certainly, you know, there are countries that like the countries in the EU that are that are welcoming the, the text around uh, transitioning from fossil fuels and achieving net zero by 2050. But equally, you can find four or five very worrying uh, pieces of language in there around um, phasing down what they call unabated coal. So this is this is coal uh, where they don't believe they will have uh, carbon capture technology to, to sequester the emissions from it. So they're kind of hoping on this sort of uh, magical unicorn that will allow them to continue business as usual. Um, they talk about an end to what they call quote unquote inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. So I'm not exactly exactly sure what the difference between efficient and inefficient fossil fuel subsidies are. Uh, and in general, just a, a heavy emphasis, I feel, on, on carbon capture and storage and what they call transition fuels or low emission fuels. So all of that really would allow a country, if they chose, to, to continue business as usual uh, if they wanted to. And I think the only value that, that the, this text has is that um, it's that peer pressure from other countries um, and the accountability that will drive countries to continue to reduce emissions and move toward renewable. And it is, of course, the poorest countries who are bearing the brunt of our climate emergency. With Brian on the news at one, Quivid Barra, CEO of Trocra. And while any agreement was better than nothing, the hope that perhaps this might send the message that fossil fuels are going the way of the dinosaur and this might mean the money will follow. I think one of the things that's most important about it is the signals that it sends to the financial markets. Currently, the financial markets provide $7 trillion in investment to the fossil fuel industry. What the financial markets will now be seeing is that the shift away from fossil fuels and towards renewable energy has to happen and it has to happen faster. So it's a wake-up call, if you like. One of the outstanding facts around this COP was the presence of over 2,400 fossil fuel lobbyists which indicates both the mountain that small island states and others that are trying to be progressive on this have to climb, but also the fact that there's a real threat to the fossil fuel industry. So over the next year, what really needs to happen is really strong work, including from Ireland, on other initiatives that will end the proliferation of fossil fuels. And on Thursday's Morning Ireland, former President of Ireland and Chair of the Elders, Mary Robinson. This year, both the Environmental Protection Agency and the Climate Advisory Council have said that as things stand, Ireland will miss its 2030 targets by a wide margin. Does that disappoint you? I'm afraid it does because we've committed and we've said we want to reduce by 51% by 2030, which is the European target, and it could go up to 55%. Um, We're on target, as I understand it, to reduce by 29%. So it's an all hands on deck now. It's a real um, awareness of a crisis. Uh, Let me just put it in a personal way. This year is the hottest year the world has ever seen. Um, Next year is likely to be hotter, and it's going to be a year that will bring home even more how on the edge we are with um, with climate. So, you know, I, I really want this to be uh, talked about in every home, in every workplace, in every uh, local authority. Um, we just need to band together now and work our hearts out 
to increase our NDC to be part of the solution. From Thursday's Morning Ireland. Now you might be feeling a little bit anxious after all that the world be burning. Deep breath. On Sunday with Miriam, Bridget Delaney. Her book is called Reasons Not to Worry, How to Be Stoic in Chaotic Times. Speak to us, Bridget. Is it true that it says you can really only control about three things in your life? That's correct. Broadly speaking, you can control your actions and reactions. Not always your actions, depending on your situation, but definitely your reactions to things. You can control your character and you can control how you treat other people. But pretty much everything else in life is outside your control, say the Stoics. There's so much of our life we have no control over. Absolutely. We have the illusion of control. And I think a lot of people like to think that they control everything. But if you look at your interactions with people, you often can't control how people respond to you. Even just being out on the road, you can't control other cars. Say, for example, you're an actor doing a performance. You can only do the performance to the best of your ability, but you can't control how the audience responds or how a critic might respond. So um, the Stoics are really good in sort of differentiating what we can and can't control and then saying, if you can't control it, don't worry about it, you know, move on. And I think that's a really, really interesting lesson uh, that we can use today. And channeling the Stoics, she offered this bit of advice. Admittedly, it's a bit grim, but maybe it works because of that. And death and grief, obviously, are, I suppose, those things in life we all find very difficult to deal with. But the Stoics actually Mm. say we can prepare for that. So how do they tell us to prepare for death and grief? I mean, their methods, I think, can be seen as a bit extreme. Um, They they ask us to imagine, for example, if you see a friend or family member you haven't seen for a while, you might be meeting up for Christmas. And you imagine that person dying and this will be the last Christmas you'd have with them. So you almost kind of vaccinate yourself or inoculate yourself against the grief that will happen when they die because you're grieving them each time you part. They call it negative visualisation, so imagining terrible things happening to loved ones, um, imagining the worst. You give yourself a bit of a a hit of that, you internalise it, and then you you know, the lesson is that you're meant to enjoy that person while you have them because you have reminded yourself that they are finite. From Sunday with Miriam. And the darkest days are upon us as we approach the winter solstice. But if you're bringing the holly and the ivy into the house for the Christmas season, Inani Launa brought us the history. In fact, she went right back to the Neolithic period. And they said the sun gets lower and lower and lower in the sky. And, you know, maybe one of these years it wouldn't come up at all. So they kept a great eye on it. And they actually built yokes to measure it, like Newgrange with a light box. And on the 22nd of December, it shone into that box. And then on the next day, and the next day, it started going up again. And by about the 25th, it hadn't gone down any further. It might, this might be the year we were all so bold and so terrible that the sun just decided to punish us and not come back anymore because the sun was the god. Lou was the sun god. But it came back, it came back, and they were delighted. We got another year out of it. We haven't died a winter yet. And they went out to the woods 
all over Ireland where holly was abundant. Holly was everywhere and indeed ivy as well and they were the only trees with leaves on them 5,000 years ago in our native woodlands and of course with a low sunshine like today the leaves were glistening, look at the holly over there mm. and it's shining and the berries were shining and Lou hadn't abandoned them, there was life, there was still life to be had in these little trees. Bring them in, we'll celebrate the pagan <laughs> god and we'll bring in the ivy as well for good measure. And Why we're still not? doing it. And it was all, I mean, so they only invented Christianity on Christmas just for the crack. I mean, when no, they well, go, I wouldn't get into that now. Eh? No, 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 but I'm just saying when they did the records, when the census was held in Roman times, because the Romans were great at keeping all these records, the census was carried out in the month of September. So he was born in September, which is a grand time to be born, God knows. But because the Saturnalia, the pagan festivity, the darkness into light, was a pagan thing with pagan gods, when Christianity came along, instead of saying, let's abolish this, they said, let's put a Christian slant on it. It's Christ's birthday, and this is what we're going to do. And so Christmas then became the prickles on the holly and the crown of thorns and the blood of Christ. And then that's grand, and we continue to celebrate it this time of the year, and nobody is barring it or being offended. So I thought it was a masterstroke myself. But when you bring in the holly, you are adoring the pagan god Lou. Yeah. All right. Papuli goes wild. On Sunday miscellany, this poem from James Harper. Winter solstice, rose window, Notre Dame Cathedral. I'm soaring backwards through a telescope, inverting me towards the very edge of time. And there it is, bang, light, the breaking of the veil of night. And see, I'm staring into the iris of God, the moment of creation. Vast unfolding petals revolve me slowly this way, that way, from colours into white, and I'm becoming part of the moment, frozen in this giant glassy fossil embedded in old stone. This rose thawed each day, this rose in which I see the very start, for then and now and now, the flare in primal dark, first flinted, spark. Back in a bit. Welcome back. With Brendan on Tuesday, Derva Lawless. She is the head of AINTHUS, the National Adult Learning Organisation. Nevertheless, this was pretty much her opening line. School wasn't really for me. Um, it just really? Felt, yeah. And now you're the CEO of I know, it's weird. Adult like, I think if I bumped into any of my school teachers, they'd probably, like, fall over with shock if they thought that I had a job like this. <laughs> well, they're probably listening now, so hi. Yeah. <laughs> Good morning. Uh, so I ended up doing an adult education course a level five in Dunleary um, was fantastic. Just all of a sudden I was like, maybe I'm not so stupid. And I was doing things like projects. It was much more independent um, kind of style of learning. I was learning things I wanted to learn about. It felt realistic. And then I got into DCU through that programme. It was an amazing pathway programme and I studied education and training. So go back there a bit. Maybe I'm not that stupid. Where'd that come <laughs> from? Was school difficult? Um, I suppose it was a mix. I ended up having two undiagnosed learning disabilities. So I had ADHD and dyscalculia. I think that's how you pronounce that. Which and maths is learning dys- disability. It's dyslexia for math, right? Yeah, yeah basically. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I think those things. So I was always in trouble in school. Like I was kicked out of maths class. I was constantly in trouble. I had a report card one year where I had to get signed in on every single class. And the teacher would sign off to say what my behaviour was like. I was that bad. <laughs> 
And while there was always an emphasis on education in the house, financially, it was a bit of a struggle. What was your home life like? Home life was challenging in different ways. So my mum was a single parent. Uh, we would have lived in poverty, really, to be honest. I know it's a weird thing to say, but like I was wearing secondhand clothes before they were fashionable. And <laughs> yeah. um, like I remember when we got a TV, we never had Internet in the house. We didn't have heating Um like all those sort of things were just normal to me. But I guess where I grew up, they were kind of normal for most of the kids around. Um, and I remember, you know, like going into someone else's house and say if they had like, like a fancy house, I just feel so awkward. Like I just Would be, you? Yeah, really awkward. I, I still feel feeling. a little bit like yeah. that now. Do you? Yeah, I relate to that. Yeah, because it was an alien. Yeah. And what, what, did, you, what did it make you, you feel, feel like? you like you're not meant to be there. Like <laughs> as if they know... She's poor, get her out of here. <laughs> like, even silly things. Like, I remember sitting in pee one day and one of the lads started slagging me because I had four stripes in my runners. And uh, they were all laughing then because my runners were obviously from wherever. And my friend was like, they are Adidas. She just, she got the new version. And <laughs> I was just sitting there mortified. <laughs> Kids are cruel. Kids are cruel. However, her mother was a powerhouse who insisted they go to school no matter what. If your leg was hanging off, you were booted out the door and sent up to school she kind of she wouldn't take crap from anybody so like when she was pushing us and there was ever any challenges like me getting in trouble in school she would still turn up to the school every single time when I got in trouble and she didn't care and she would keep sending me back to school and she even used reverse psychology on me I think I was probably about 15 and she told me she was taking me out of the school and she had told me she didn't register me again for the next year and like this went on all summer and she was and to the point where I was like I am going back to school you can't stop me <laughs> And it worked. She did stay in school. But as she told Brendan, she feels the education system as it currently stands can really damage some students. When you're in a school system and you have to ask permission to go to the bathroom, you have to sit still and quiet for 60 or 90 minutes. And you're not like having a conversation with and explained why things should happen or why things should take place. It's very authoritative. It wasn't great. And then you could see in our school, now it was a great school in many ways, but yeah. they had a tiered system. So like when you start arrived in first year, there, all the students were put into different levels of classes. So from day one, there was this separation between all the students of who was in the top class, who was in the bottom class. And it just destroyed people's confidence. Like it was, I just, I really disagree with that type of kind of approach in education. Your well-being and your health is compromised so that you can survive a system that was designed for other people. And if you manage to come out the other side, well done. But like there's lasting damage from that. Do you know what I mean? And in her view, education is vital to help people get out of poverty and have a better life. If you look around areas like that where you've had uh, generation after generation in the same family who haven't managed to finish school for a number of different reasons, who didn't get access or opportunities in adult education for different reasons. Um, and, you know, they might have in their wider family people suffering from addiction, poor mental health. And um, maybe they have children and they're struggling to pay the bills. There's so many different things that compound those issues. Yeah. And it just makes it really difficult. And I've just seen it over and over again. And I think even like the situation that's happening in Ireland at the moment, you know, we're seeing this gap between the rich and the poor and it's getting wider and wider. And then people are being labelled as scumbags or lazy if they're not succeeding. And it's like everything is stacked against them. It's really hard. And I even feel sorry for the younger generation because, you know, we were fed these things growing up that like if you work hard and, you know, you go to college or you get a job, you'll be able to have a home, you'll have security, you'll have like, a, you know, a certain kind of style of life. But that's just not true now. Like you, you need a lot of kind of financial backing from a family member if you were lucky enough to have that. And most people don't. And then Brendan, well, he offered her a wish or two. It is Christmas. 
if you had a magic wand, what would you do? Two things probably is the first thing is to stop looking at education as if it's around training for employment. We're people, we're not employees. I think we really need to be mindful of that, that like at the moment, a lot of the policy and a lot of the narrative in Ireland is around the economy and what people can do when they're in work. But like at the end of the day, we're people first. Yeah. We're a society. We have to protect the fabric of our society um, and then look at what actually can be set up around that system. So like look at the person help them to find themselves and to be their best self and then they'll find the right job for them. You can't do it the other way around. Derval Lawless of Aintas with Brendan. Mightily impressive. And over with Ray Amory Lawley. She's a clinical nurse manager in inclusion health at St James's Hospital in Dublin and she works primarily with homeless people who've got health issues and their needs are often quite specific. You know, I'd been working acute medicine for a long time and, and you know, you could just see it wasn't working for certain patients um, who were also the ones who were the sickest and who died youngest, as I discovered then afterwards, you know. So what's the life expectancy, say, of a, a rough sleeping man? Um, for, for a homeless person in Ireland, it's 43 for a man and 38 for a woman. It, like It's very stark, isn't yes. it? Yeah. Uh, I think because we were ploughing away in the hospital, it was only kind of years later when we looked back, we'll say all those advocacy letters we were doing for people in the first year or two. And they're all dead. All of them, like. And then, you know, now because three what of our What was an advocacy team, letter? It's kind of just advocating for better needs for someone, um, right. for their housing needs and stuff. Okay. Now, we can't change what's going on out there, but you can, you can try, you know what I mean? Mm. And there's all uh, different types of hostels, so maybe one with more support, yeah, and things like that. And again, so many of the people she sees are survivors of trauma. The homeless people that we would see in St. James's Hospital, at least 95% of them have had a trauma or multiple traumas in their past. What sort of things are we talking about? We're talking about poverty, generational poverty. We're talking about childhood abuse, be it physical or um, sexual. Um, we're talking about domestic violence relationships. Um, a lot of young lads coming out of care who maybe don't have um So when you hit 18 skills. in this country, if you've mm. been in foster care, mm. when you hit 18, that's it? An awful lot of them are falling into homelessness, yes. yeah. You know, and then they, they're like, sure, like who's mature at 18 these days? No. I mean, you know, and just not having those life skills. Um, and, and due to that, then there's a lot of kind of emotional dysregulation, we call it. So, you know, someone who's getting extra stressed from a situation that we might have handled a little bit differently, like you're being discharged from a hospital back into a hostel again and you're lo- they're looking at you and it's like, you know, you can't send me back there again, you know, oh, like yes. it's full of drug addicts yes, or it's, yes. you know, I have no privacy or they nick all my stuff, you know. Um, it, it's, uh, it, that can come across as like really aggressive or really stressed and stuff, you know. And while we can't change what's happening in that situation, I mean, looking at them, you know, saying I, I can't help you with that now today. You know, it's it's I can't help that situation. But listening to them, sitting down with them, I understand. I've been down there. I know what it's like. I've seen them. You know, we went out and saw all these services. And like I said, a lot of the people we work with now came from community. Um, and, and, you know, and it's just listening to people, you okay. know, and, and they've learned to trust us as well because I think trust That's building important, is, it's isn't massive. It? Yeah, it's huge. Because huge a lot important. of these people, they, they've been <laughs> neglected. Lived down their whole lives, yes. you know. And when people come to A&E, they can have a lot going on. I mean, it's all very well someone coming in, you know, with this massive infection in their leg, you know, and it's like, but their priority at that moment might be to go and get their money. Um, you know, there's no point in saying to them, you know, you know, your, your leg's going to fall off or, you know, you're, you're going to lose your leg. You know, they've been here their whole life. You know, I've been told I'd be dead for years. And so it's, it's listening to them there and just supporting them in what way they mm. can. Can we get a key worker to collect your money for you? Can we get someone to go with you to maybe encourage them to come back again? 
if they haven't got clothes or money when they're coming in, you know, like a lot of people don't want to come to ED because, well, you know, nobody really likes to go to ED. But if you don't have money, you know, you or I, I'll fall out the door there, like down the steps and I might need a minor operation on my leg. I, I will, most of us will have someone to bring you in, change your clothes overnight, a toothbrush, underwear, maybe something clean to wear if you're walking around all day, you might be wet. But a lot of people don't, you know. There's nobody. Uh, yeah, so it's it's like what are you? What do you need right now? Mm. Here, here we are, um, and it's not just their medical and their nursing needs, you know. And where are you staying? And yeah. what supports do you need? So what 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 about Christmas then? Is it a particularly tough time of the year? Um, I suppose it is. Yeah, <laughs> I think everybody <laughs> thinks of family and time off and yeah. a bit of luxury, isn't it? Yeah. So I mean, I I think it it might be tra- very traumatic. I'd say for an awful lot of people. Yeah. Mm. Anne-Marie Lawley with Ray. And on the news at one, the Capuchin Day Centre in Dublin, which had 3,000 people queuing up for vouchers for Christmas food. Father Kevin Kiernan spoke to Brian. Some people were queuing since about uh, just after 4am this morning. The tickets were gone. They were gone by half ten. And on on, on top of that, um, the usual thing on a Wednesday morning, we give out bags of groceries. So 1,450 were given out today. So 3,000 people today, Father Kevin, would would that be be typical of the number that would turn up on this day just before Christmas? Last year, I think there was 2,600 tickets given out. It's up. And what are you seeing in terms of those who are who are coming to you today? Is there other other families, single people? Is it very mixed? It's mixed, but there's lots of families, like children. Like for example, the child attendance service increased is, has increased by fifty percent this year. For example, in two thousand and twenty-two, five thousand two hundred uh, came children came over the year. This year, it's 10,384. And those children, what, what help, what assistance are you providing to them? Well, obviously, the main thing is, 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 is the food and the meals. And we have a, a separate family area for the, the children and their parents. So that's, that's, that's the first thing. But on Monday, we um, distribute nappies and baby food. Last year, we gave out 5,200 uh, supplies of nappies and baby food. This year it's gone up to 10,027, so an increase of 48%. That's an extraordinary increase, really, isn't it? Mm. And you're seeing this across the board in terms of uh, the demand for your services. Yeah. And see, the, the interesting thing is that when we think of a homeless person, sometimes we have this stereotypical image of a, an old man with a beard. It's right across the board families, children parents and it just seems to be no end to it. From the news at one, back in a bit. Welcome back. On Liveline, Millie. I open at half six in the morning, I go home at half six at night, I'm back at 10.30, we close at half eleven and I go down the road on a bicycle at half twelve and I'm drinking a bottle of Guinness going to bed at ten to one. You can't beat that, Joe! Millie runs the Maxall station in Mullingar. He's been in the business since he was 14. He's now about to turn 73. And it's fair to say his customers love him. Wow. But I just rang in because I, I was in Millie's shop a couple of times after my father had passed away. Okay. And I just mentioned it to him one day. Um, 
And he followed me out a few minutes later. I was out putting something into the boot of the car. And he said, there's a little a little prayer and a poem now that I've printed off for your father. And he gave me this, this lovely poem that was so touching. And every time I go in there, I think of him and I think of my father. And um, that's the kind of man he is. He's a great fella. Isn't that beautiful? That's really... He's unique, actually. He is unique, unique. yeah. Uh, alien, alien. Hi, Joe. You come in praise of Millie. Millie Walsh. I do. Yeah, Joe, um, I'm a paramedic. I was based in Mullingar there for the last 20 years. And right. every Christmas without fail, Millie would drop down a box of chocolates ah. to the ambulance station to us. Every year. Well done. Yeah. And would yeah. you... And always, and always so good to us when we pull in for diesel or coffee or whatever, you know. A gentleman. And is, this, is the petrol station as exciting as, as, um, as Millie sounds? As sounds and welcoming. 100%. Yeah, 100%. Out over the Tannoy in the forecourt, he'd be roaring out because I'm from Mayo originally. Out over the Tannoy, <laughs> I'd be getting out to the ambulance to get diesel. Yeah. He'd be roaring out the, on the Tannoy about the Mayo girl. There's the Mayo girl. Oh, Anyone brilliant. that comes in that gets the greeting, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. He's wonderful. Incredible, incredible. Where's Dermot Mullen? All your customers are talking to us now. You know, Libby's one of the best. So, He's go. there at the witness myself where I've gone in, where anybody had a bereavement. He goes out the back and he gets them a little pair of rosary beads and a few prayers. Yeah, yeah. I get the people leaving the shop. Yeah. And he's at every funeral like, between Delvin and Mullingar and Captain oh, Town. That's the whole lot. He's one of the best. Man, Dermot, for God, don't die, Dermot. He won't know him even as. And Dermot, don't die. <laughs> <laughs> and his father went in the other week for a car wash, Joe. And yeah. he's very good with the old people around Mullingar and Delvin. And he comes out and gives him a free car wash. And my good neighbours here across the road, Anne Frankie Hart, he sends Anne off the box of chocolates every Christmas. He's a girl. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. And apparently, uh, Millie, people are telling us you're very good to local charities. Very good. You do your bit, very good. Yeah. You have to give back something. Oh, and it being Mullingar, well, there's no show like a Joe show. <laughs> 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 it's you, it's you, it's you, Millie. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ah, he's great. <laughs> From Liveline. And it is the time for gift giving socks, perfume, gloves, socks. Socks, socks. Mindless consumerism leading to tat-laden landfill or an opportunity to tell your loved one just how much they mean to you with socks. And Adam Maguire of the Business Desk brought the bar humbug into studio with Philip. Define Scroogeonomics for me. Yeah, this is a term coined by an American economist, Joel Waldfogel, a little over a decade ago. It it refers to his attempts to calculate how much money we waste at Christmas because his argument is that gift giving, especially at a large scale like we do at Christmas time, is hugely inefficient. We inevitably buy things that people don't want or they don't want as much as we think they want them. And of course, we receive gifts that we don't want as well. And that represents a destruction of value. And the argument is that if someone, if you were to hand someone 10 euro and they then throw that in the bin, that's 10 euro waste that value is destroyed and if you apply the same logic to a product that costs 10 euro you give it to them and they throw it in the bin that's 10 euro worth of value that's been wasted to the economy Indeed and in a world of finite resources it's resources wasted Well steady yourself sock lovers of the world because in terms of waste we essentially bin 18% of the gifts that we receive
how does he arrive at that number? Yeah, so, so he bases this on the idea of, of the satisfaction we get from things. So things we buy for ourselves, we tend to only buy them when we think we're going to get satisfaction to the value of or greater than what we're actually spending in monetary terms. But when we buy for other people, we're not so good at judging that. I've so, got a whole closet full of satisfaction. Well, then. exactly. There you go. You, you only buy things when you think, well, it's worth the money, basically. Uh, so Walfogel asked his students, first of all, and then he broadened the survey out. He asked them about the Christmas gifts they got, how much they were worth in the shops and how much they were worth to them in terms of the satisfaction. How much would you be willing to spend yeah, for this okay. if you were buying it yourself? And he found consistently there was an 18% gap between the satisfaction people got from the things other people bought from them compared to what they buy for themselves. But if you're sitting there thinking, I may be a wasteful fool, bath salts, novelty calendars, that is not the point, man. I love you and I will demonstrate that with these. They're really good socks. Some have argued that Walfogel's calculations are a really good example of why people don't like economists because he's he's effectively turning what is a positive, well-meaning undertaking into a balance sheet exercise. It's the plus and minus of of Christmas gift giving and it misses out on on so much of what Christmas is is about. Because, of course, it's not just about the the, the thought and effort that's involved, but people do like to buy things for the people. We have an altruistic streak, even if our taste isn't quite so good. And people like receiving gifts, even if it's not necessarily what you like. You like getting something and opening the wrapping and all that. And, and Walfogel also accepts that in some cases, you know, there's a difference between what we buy for ourselves versus something that's bought for us. You can't always compare the two. So he points out, you know, for example, there's often an element of permission in gift giving, especially with couples or, or maybe close relatives. Uh, you know, you might have a luxury item that you really want and you technically could afford it, but you decide it's not the best use of my money right now. I'm, I'm going to put it off. I'm not going to buy it. And then your partner buys it for you, maybe from the joint account. So it's technically coming from the same pot. But the permission they give you means you can feel more enjoyment getting it. At least you're not going to feel so guilty having spent the, 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 the reserves on this luxury item. Or, whisper it, you could just give cash. Perish the thoughts, says Philip Boucher Hayes. I mean, what you're effectively saying is, I'm a miserable git who has zero imagination and has no idea who you are, Adam Maguire, and what you like. It is, and that's why people don't like handing over cash. Absolutely. That being said... A few crumpled fibres or even ironed, it is Christmas after all. Well, you wouldn't want to seem ungrateful. But if you're thinking of giving teacher a present as a thank you, don't, says consumer journalist Claire Ronan, because we all know what you're trying to do. There's a small little part of it all that could be a little sinister, Cormac. Go on. I mean, do you think that the teacher might like your Mary or Johnny Moore if they got a 50 euro voucher for Brian Thomas instead of a candle bloody from well the Euros so. Saver bloody well hope so if I'm forking out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hate to break in the news to you. If they don't like your Johnny before the 50 euro Brian Thomas voucher, they're That's not going to like him that after. That is true. But is that what you think it is? Buying favour? Well, I think there's an element of that. Uh, there is an element of that now. And having said that, I wouldn't insult teachers to actually go with it. But I spoke to a number of teachers today. One who's a very good friend of mine got 15 Yankee candles today and 10 <laughs> best teacher mugs. Now, yeah. wait till you hear this. Yeah. Another friend told me she got a best teacher hamper, including Christmas decorations, which have best teacher on them, T-shirt, which has best teacher, yeah. and a mug and a foil balloon. What's and she said, Claire, do you 
<laughs> Do you think I would walk around my house with a T-shirt saying "Best Teacher" with my Christmas tree covered in "Best Teacher"? Well, if I got, if any listener wants to send me a T-shirt with "Best Broadcaster" on it, I will certainly wear it when Sarah comes into studio next. That's for sure. But tell me this. Okay, we'll Oh, Cormac. Meanwhile, on Rising Time, Petula Martin gave Sheburn the scent of Elvis. Actually, she sprayed the entire studio with the king. So I, I got you a little Christmas present. What? I did, yeah. Wait, You're joking. Wait, there. I'll pass it over to you. But you can't open it yet. What's this? A, it's a, I can't open it yet. Well, as in, don't, don't. Okay, so the, see the gingerbread. There's gingerbread um, reindeer. Oh, my God. Because you always like something with your cup of tea. Yeah. Okay. Now see the wow. red bag then that's in here. Don't, don't, don't touch it yet. So basically, I saw this interview with Priscilla Presley. <laughs> and um, it was sort of an audience with Priscilla Presley in California. And then uh, somebody in the audience asked a question. And the question was, what aftershave or cologne did Elvis wear? Oh. And I was like, oh, God, that's, that's really a good interesting. question. It's yeah. a good question, yeah. And she said, well, actually, kind of 60s, 70s, there, there, there wasn't really kind of aftershave or cologne. But what he did wear was... Old Spice. Old Spice. So now for Christmas you get to smell like Elvis. It's a full set in a red bag. This is... Hang on, I'll put my glasses on. The bag is actually quite useful, isn't it? The bag is brilliant. It's lovely soft. The the place will smell like Elvis. Yeah, Brian and Courtney will be in here later. You see, like, was Elvis in here? Oops, I sprayed it on the mic. On the microphone. Do you know what? It's lovely. Ah, oh, you're very welcome. Very there refreshing. You Thank you very, you're very much. Very well that's very yeah. good. Ah, that's very kind of you. I went searching for it yesterday. I went into three chemists before I found it. <laughs> How lovely. And keep that Elvis smell in your nostrils. You'll be hearing it again. Because on Thursday evening, there was a celebration of 50 years of this radio building. And it is a really beautiful building. It has hosted amazing music sessions, knife-edge election coverage, heated roundtable discussions, orchestral manoeuvres and moving interviews that have stopped us in our tracks. Good evening. Hi, BBC is sending 1K tone. Okay. I don't think with silence. Hey, I can't find nothing on the radio. Uh, you'll turn to that station. And we're live. Hello, D.E. Fajrovish Doc. Fajrovish on Kailura Special to August indeed. Kailura Star Rule Freshen. Mar a sort of Brehe at Hagwing in Anokt. Quagablinic Foss. Mar a Derha. 50 years of growing. Something like that. Hello again, friends and neighbours, and welcome to Studio One here at the Radio Centre in Dublin. Wherever you are in the world, there's a welcome on the mat. And you know, when you're with RTE Radio One, you're at home. John Creedon at the helm and it was a really fine two hours. Great music, ever so slightly indiscreet gossip from behind the scenes and a lot more. So if you love your radio, do yourself a favour and listen back. But very few live broadcasts go entirely smoothly. Now we had reports of interference from Carnhill transmitter, is it? Or Kerman Carn? 
Oh, no, no, okay. It's Pat McCabe. He's trying to get a word in here, sorry. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, we invite you to lift the latch, open the door. Radio Buddy, right broadcasting on 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. That's Din Joe and Take the Floor, but much better than that, a bit of the old film war. So long, goodbye. She was as conspicuous as a tarantula on a slice of angel cake. Who wrote that? Ring in 426-5634-1%. The long goodbye. It's a long goodbye. And it Back in those days, there used to be a lot of problems in Ireland. Yeah, there's always problems. And if I had a problem, radio buddy, I used to ring up old Frankie. My boyfriend at me. Frankie would show you the way out. I've been keeping company with this man for ten years. And seeing as how it's our tenth anniversary this Christmas, I must ask you, what is your opinion about my chances of getting married? So far, there's been... Back in those days, after the Kennedys of Castle Ross, if you had friends in America or relatives, they might come home and read you a little bit of beat poetry. Mr. Jack Kerouac. The moon, her magic be, big sad face of infinity. An illuminated clay ball. Well, as you know, this is a very literary radio station here on Captain Buddy's 4562%. And coming up right now is the James Joyce Puzzle Show. Round her cradle out, upside down. Can you tell us from which Magnificent James Joyce work this comes. Jennifer, haven't I told you every telling has a tailing, and that's the he and the she of it. Look, look, the dusk is growing. But much more importantly than that, forthcoming musical, Should the Farmer and the Cowman Be Friends? And who is man's best friend? I would suggest, with Oklahoma coming right up, that this is indeed the farmer's best friend. Hello. I'm Mr. Ed. Okay, folks, on we go with Radio Buddy, and here's our favorite tune coming right up a long way from Oklahoma, but it's going to be a beautiful day there today. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. There's a bright golden haze on the meadow. The corn is as high as an elephant's eye And it looks like it's climbing clear up to the sky Oh, what a beautiful morning Oh, what a beautiful day I got a beautiful feeling Everything's going my way And that, gentle listener, was Shea Byrne. What a voice. Well, we are almost at a finish here on Playback, but not quite, because that celebration also brought us this from Seamus Barrow O'Sullivan. It's very beautiful. It's called Iowa. And that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.